Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 54 through chapter 8, verse 4. You can find it on page 916 in the Pew Bibles. Now, this morning, we're going to finish up looking at the life, the martyrdom, and the heavenly glory of this very brief but significant figure of Stephen. Stephen, we've been looking at him carefully over these last couple of weeks and trying to discern through what does it mean actually to bear witness to Christ? What does it look like in in Stephen's life? And what does it mean to look like in our lives to truly bear witness to the name of Jesus? And and I wonder if, if you were just asked that question, how would you respond? What does it mean to bear witness to Christ? I'm guessing that some of us would sort of turn to evangelistic methods, We say, oh, you know, it's like the Roman road or the four spiritual laws or evangelism explosion. Maybe you'd get out a napkin and start drawing a picture of a bridge or three circles on it. Maybe some of you would say, you know, I I think bearing witness to Christ looks like living in such a way, in such a manner that our lives commend the gospel through our love and good deeds. Others might think, well, you know, bearing witness to Christ is preaching or is that public proclamation of the word. Others might say, you know what, I think bearing witness to Christ means that we contend for that one faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And I think that all of those things are true. But so far we've seen that bearing witness to Christ means living for Christ, meaning that we live as Christ, we look like Christ. And also not only do we live for Christ, but we speak for Christ And this morning, we're going to look at what it means to die for Christ. Living for Christ means living as Christ did, even in the face of hostility, according to the grace that God supplies us. It means looking like Jesus, living like Jesus, loving like Jesus, caring like Jesus, serving like Jesus, even being willing to face opposition as he did, as we live in dependence upon the grace that God supplies Bearing witness for Christ not only means that living for Christ, but also speaking for Christ as we believe and speak the whole counsel of God, just as Christ did, no more and certainly no less. That we are not at liberty to reduce the whole counsel of God down to something less than Jesus believed and Jesus taught. Otherwise, if we do that, we are not truly his followers. We're not truly his ambassadors. Rather, we are trying to make gods of ourselves and believing and living and proclaiming what we want to believe. And nor does it give us license then to just kind of go through life just sort of ignorant of the whole counsel of God. That as long as I profess a faith in Christ that I can just kind of do whatever I want and believe however I want and it doesn't really matter and just not know God or his word. Because if we don't, hold to the whole counsel of God as Jesus held to it, we won't know God's word. We won't know the unity of it. We won't know who God is. And we won't even know how stiff-necked people, idolatrous people, just like you and me, even come to find Jesus Christ. And bearing witness for Christ not only means living for Christ and speaking for Christ, it also means dying for Christ. That now... As always, Christ will be honored in my body by living or by my dying. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, we don't talk about that much in the American church today. The Lord calls us to, though, 
And I think it's because we're so afraid of, of loss. We're so afraid of ridicule. We're so afraid of death. And we know so little of the glories of Christ. The Lord saved me when I was 10 years old. But you know, it wasn't until college, listening to John Piper CDs in my car with Phyllis, that I first heard anyone speak of suffering for the glory of Christ. To speak about missions and martyrs as, as being worthy of our lives. And though God doesn't need us, God can do all of his work without us. He brings us into his fold. He allows us to be his witnesses for our joy and our glory in him. And that is worthy of our lives. He speaks of joy and satisfaction and gain in living and speaking and even dying for Christ. And, and friends, I don't want us to minimize this. I don't want to reduce this way, uh, away as to what it means to, to know and love and follow Christ and the glories that are to be found in him. All right? Because Stephen was the first of what is estimated to be 70 million martyrs who have died for the cause of Christ. 70 million. Christianity is alive and well today because they are not. Stephen wasn't a martyr just because he died as a Christian. That word martyr means a witness. Stephen was a martyr because he died bearing witness to the glories of Christ. Friends, we are here today because he is not. The gospel through this man, through this message was spread to the nations. And so the question becomes, what are we going to do with this message this message that was bought with the blood of the Son of God and 70 million martyrs. We are to live it and speak it and even be willing to die for it as we bear witness to the glories of Christ. In Acts chapter 7, verse 54 through chapter 8, verse 4, is going to tell us how to do that. And here's what it's going to say to us, that though they rage against us, the glory of Christ sustains our love and bears unexpected fruit. I know that's a mouthful, but all we're going to do is just break that down into three parts. That though they rage against us, the glory of Christ sustains our love and bears unexpected fruit. And so with that, let's read of the witness in Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 54. It says, now when they, that's the council and, and the mob who was with them, heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
And witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Though the enemies rage against us, the glory of Christ will sustain our love and bear unexpected fruit. And so first I want to look at that statement. What does it mean that though these enemies rage against us? Friends, you need to understand something very, very clearly. There is nothing that you or I can do to remove the offense of the cross. There is nothing that we can do to remove the offense of the gospel. It is simply going to be offensive, right? We can try to employ apologetics, right, to help others to see, you know what, our faith is reasonable. We're not actually stupid or superstitious or out of our minds. We can try to focus on the gifts rather that are given in the gospel rather than God himself, trying to help others to see that Christ is better than being outside of Christ, right? That you're better off being in rather than out, right? Because like, you know, you don't want to go to hell. It's hot there. Or, you know, you want to see your grandma when you die, don't you? Well, you need to come to Jesus if you're going to do that. Which sounds better to you, streets of gold or lakes of fire, trumpets or pitchforks? You make up your mind. Or maybe a bit more seriously, the glory and grace of God versus the futility of of living life without him. We can wrongly attempt to reduce the gospel down to some lowest common denominator so that it's easier for others to accept it and believe it. Right? As long as you profess Jesus and you raise your hand and you sing Hosanna, right? It doesn't matter what you do a few days later saying, crucify him, crucify him. Or that all you really need to do is kind of hold to historic confessions of the faith as far as like what it, what it barely means to believe in Jesus. Like as long as you hold that the Son of God took on flesh, he died for sin and rose three days later, then it really doesn't matter what else that you believe or how you live or what you do, that, that you can throw all that aside. And as long as you haven't abandoned this historic confession of the church, this minimal view of what the gospel is, then you can, your life and your doctrine it doesn't matter. Some false teachers distort the gospel, trying to persuade you that, that believing the good news is all about health and wealth and prosperity. That Jesus will help you to realize your inner potential. They will help you to fulfill all of your dreams in this life. 
that he wants you to be happy, to be happy with yourself, to be happy with your circumstances by changing you and your circumstances, but not being happy in him regardless of who you are or what your situation is. But the simple fact remains that if we are to live for Christ and we are to speak for Christ, then we cannot remove the offense of the gospel. Friends, this doesn't mean that we're haters, that we're mean and vindictive and judgmental and self-righteous. You know, this is not going all Westboro on anybody. But the reality of the fact that the aroma of Christ will be life to those who receive it, and to those who do not, it will be death. And you can't candy coat that. You can't cover that up. You can't Febreze that all away. Verse 54 says that when they heard these things that Stephen had spoken for good 53 verses there, they were enraged. Quite literally, they were sawn through the heart. Stephen had taken a chainsaw to their chest and they ground their teeth at him. You know, grinding your teeth is where you bite down so hard that you're wearing the enamel off your teeth. You're gritting so hard that your fillings are ready to pop out. They're not happy. You can't make them happy. Oh, Stephen, you know, your faith is so reasonable, and you have given me many proofs of Jesus' divinity. This is an epistemological wonder. I shall go and ponder these things. Wow, Stephen, I can see how personally advantageous this good news is, both in this material life and forevermore. Thank you for making me both substantially and spiritually rich. Or... This is what I've been longing for, Stephen, a profession of faith in a God that makes almost no demands on how I live or what I believe. No, it says that they were enraged. They were grinding their teeth. They were ready to kill Stephen just like they were ready to kill the apostles back in Acts chapter 5, verse 33. Only this time, Gamaliel's not going to stand in between because he's in with them. And we know he's in with him because his little tutor, Saul, is right there holding the garments. Now they were enraged. You see, no matter what you try to do, how you try to approach them with the message of the gospel, there are simply offenses that you cannot remove. There are three offenses in particular that you cannot remove from the gospel. If you try to remove them from the gospel, you lose the gospel. The first offense is the authority of the message. People never like it when you say, this is from God. And they never like it when you say, this is from God, and you speak with authority. Hate that. Because if this is from God, then it is true, it's authoritative, and it's personally binding whether you accept it or not. It just is, right? Your disagreement with it doesn't change the fact that it is. God, who has made and sustains all things, has spoken He has revealed himself throughout the history of mankind. This God never sins, he never lies, and he can never give his glory to another because to do so would to cease to be God. He always speaks the truth and there is nothing that he reveals of himself that is contradictory with his nature, his character, his purposes, or his promises. And so if God says it, that is it. The discussion is now over. That's all we've got. Because he is God and we are not. 
And true faith requires that we take him at his word. If you don't have to take God at his word, it's not faith, not true faith, not saving faith. His authority supersedes our own. And because it supersedes our own, we are now obligated to submit ourselves to him. And if we are to speak as Christ, if we are to speak then as the unyielding son of God, then that means that we declare this authoritative truth with the same level of authority when we speak. And they're going to hate it. They're not going to like it. I know this because I watch it Sunday after Sunday from this point of view. Now, if you go all relativistic and you say, you know, well, um, gosh, I I think this is true. I I don't really know for sure. I'm just kind of telling you what works for me. And I I think it's going to work for you. But, you know, I just kind of have faith and I believe and I've got kind of this inner peace about it. And and I think it'll work for you if you just take it uh, to heart as well. They're going to just say whatever. Who cares? It doesn't really matter. But if you get up and you speak as Christ spoke, if you speak as Stephen spoke or the apostles spoke, you should say, man, you know, he speaks with such boldness and, and such confidence. He clearly thinks he's right. He, he's some kind of know-it-all. But who is he? He's nobody. And guys, that's the point. Right? It's not the man that makes the message. It's the message that makes the man. Right? We are nobody. I am nobody. What makes this message authoritative is the message itself and who gives us this message. And that's what matters. Our authority comes from God, and so we proclaim it with authority. And people will hate that because if God is God and this is his word, then I am obligated to it whether I accept it or not. And they will go to great lengths to try to minimize or reject that authority. A second offense that you can't remove from the gospel is the declaration that we are by nature self-condemned sinners. Guys love that one, right? Hey, you're evil. Thank you. Right? It just doesn't work. Let's not forget Steve, why, why we're here, right? Stephen is speaking to these very religious leaders, and they are very, very angry with Stephen. And they're very, very angry with Stephen because of what he told them in verses 51 through 53 that you are a stiff necked people. You are uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did they not persecute? Right? All these guys are coming, they're telling beforehand of the righteous one, right? You rejected it, but not only that, you actually betrayed and murdered him, right? You who say that you have received the law as delivered from angels and did not keep it. Now, aside from that whole receiving the law as delivered from angels, this describes every single person from Adam and Eve on. It's you, that's me, that is everybody. You see, we're all born dead in our sin. We're all born enslaved by our sin, and we're all born condemned by our sin. Ephesians chapter 2 describes us as hopeless, helpless, and without God in the world. That's who we all were, or maybe some of you here, that's who you 
currently are. And we don't like that. Each and every one of us, in one way or another, has rejected God. We've all disobeyed His commands. We've all tried to live our lives without Him as if this is my world and I am God. I can do whatever I want. And this is why Christ came. Because this one holy, living, sovereign God of the universe made and sustains all that there is. He has revealed himself to us with authority in one fashion or another, and we have all rejected him. Every one of us. You lose that, you've lost half of the gospel message. Now, if we lose this, it's no longer the gospel. And friends, let's get this clear. Like, if people get offended because you acknowledge that they are short, I mean abridged in stature, or that they are robust rather than thin, or that they are unprepossessing, you know, that they, they wear their adornment on the inside, right? Or that they are a little bit below the national average on aptitude, if they get offended by those things, they're most certainly going to be offended by the fact that you acknowledge, even though you acknowledge that you are right along with them, to be sinners. If they have willfully placed themselves under the eternal wrath of God. You tell them that, you probably should not expect an invitation to their birthday party. And the third offense is Christ himself. You see, it's one thing to believe that there's a God who made all things, and he is the authority of, over all things. He's revealed himself to his people. It's one thing to believe that you are guilty of sinning against this God. And it is quite another thing to believe that this one true and living God has existed eternally as a tri-unity of Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in three persons, who after revealing himself progressively to his people for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, at just the right point in history, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That this one true and living God sent his son to live a perfect life in complete obedience to the law. To die on a cross, a humiliating, scandalous death on a cross as a sacrifice for sin. And who then three days later rose from the grave so that all who actually just kind of say that they repent of their sin and believe in Jesus will, will be forever reconciled to live with God forever in heaven as his children thus fulfilling all of those promises that God made for all of those years. And then not only did he rise from the grave, but he also ascended into heaven and is now there ruling. When I look at the world around me, he's up there ruling. And, and until he comes again in glory to judge all things, we are to continue to live for him and speak for him and even die for him. And this is what there is? Friends, that, that's offensive. Had it not been for God's work in my life, that would be offensive. Because I, I get that. I understand that completely. But yet, this is glory. God has done this work in our hearts that we can believe. Friends, I've been talking about authority. I've been talking about sin. I've been talking about Christ as these immovable offenses 
of the gospel. And I just wonder, do you find them offensive? Do you find it offensive that there is a God who reigns over all things and you are subjected to him? That he has declared his will and his ways to us and you are bound by it? Is it offensive to know that you are a sinner, that you can do absolutely nothing to save yourself and you deserve eternal judgment by this holy God? Is it offensive to you that God had to do the work for you by sending his son to be born a a humiliating death, live a perfectly obedient life, die a humiliating death, rise from the grave and be ascended into heaven and will come again in glory. And in the meantime, you just tough it out. I don't mean that you actually do that, but that's the way we feel. Let me assure you that left to ourselves, we all do. And that is why salvation is a work of God. That is why God is the one who has to make us alive. That is why God has to open our ears and open our eyes to see the glories of Christ and to find them beautiful. Friends, don't stop at just saying, I I believe these things to be true. Do you find them beautiful, lovely, worthy of your life? These religious leaders, though they had said that they had submitted to the authority of God, were actually living as though they themselves were authorities on God. That they had a right to stand over the authority of God's word and declare in judgment against it. They considered themselves to be good, holy, and righteous and were angered by Stephen's declaration of the true state of their hearts. And though they had spent their lives praying that God would bring this Christ, this deliverer who would come and save them. They were appalled when Stephen proclaimed in verse 56 that he could see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now this is a problem for them because it ran against their strict monotheism. Behold our God, the Lord, the Lord is one, right? And If the Son of Man was standing at the right hand of God, then that would mean that they had missed the Christ. That they were left behind. That not only had they missed him, but they had also killed him. And this is why we read in verse 57... But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. They refused to hear another word. And before a verdict was even handed down, this mob rushed together at him. Law and order gave way to anarchy. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now friends, unlike lethal injection or a firing squad, this stoning was a slow, bloody, and exhausting affair. Rarely would a few rocks do the job. It wasn't like one direct hit and the guy drops dead. He was pummeled. Stone after stone after stone. And as these stones are flying in his direction, he's crying out. He's calling out to his loved ones. He's trying to declare truth and plead his case as they're breaking his body. They, the executioners, would have to lay their garments aside 
because this was a hot, dirty, and exhausting business to kill a man with stones. Notice that it says that witnesses laid down their garments. So the witnesses laid down these garments, right? These holy men appointed by God and the people to bear witness to Israel of the coming salvation in the Christ were now killing Stephen, the one who actually was. They were so offended by the gospel that when given the opportunity, when gathered together in this mob, when there was no threat of being held accountable, they would stop at absolutely nothing to silence the gospel, including bashing someone's head and chest in with rocks. But it didn't stop there. It's not like they were satisfied with Stephen's death and then they walked away. Wipe our hands of that, now we're good. Their rage against Christ didn't end with Stephen. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered, except for the apostles. Christians couldn't stay in Jerusalem any longer. Verse 3 says that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He's hunting them down. He dragged off men and women, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, and committed them to prison. Now, where Stephen's death may have been the result of just the unruly mob, this clearly was not. This was officially sanctioned persecution of the church from those who were offended by the gospel. But friends, if you try to remove the offense, you lose the gospel. To try to appease their rage or to reduce persecution is to lose the gospel. You simply cannot do it and be faithful to Christ. And so as long as there is that offense, there will be those who rage against it. But though they rage against us, second, the glory of Christ sustains our love. Peace will come, not as we compromise the gospel, or as we try to wrestle for control of God's plan to try to do it our own way, make it more palatable, make it more entertaining and less offensive, but as we live for Christ and proclaim Christ, trusting that God will bring peace through his established means in his own perfect timing. The gospel does bring peace to those who receive it. But those who rage against it will continue their war until Christ comes again. And, let's face it, depending on your millennial view, maybe even after. But we cannot bring about peace by manipulating or minimizing or redirecting by doing anything other than what God himself commands. But even if they rage against us, Christ himself is our peace, and his glory will sustain us. It will strengthen us. It will encourage us and embolden us just to do what he has called us to do. 
Four times in this very short account of the life and death of Stephen, we are told that Stephen was full of the Spirit. We're told it in chapter 6, verses 3, 5, and 10, again in 755. That means that the Holy Spirit was influencing him, equipping him to love and serve the church. Stephen was acting as a peacemaker within this local body of Christians. It was the Holy Spirit that emboldened him and gave him wisdom and understanding that could not be thwarted by all of his adversaries as he declared the truth and beauty of Jesus. And it was the Holy Spirit who kept the glory of Christ ever before his eyes as he suffered, as he bled, as he was being killed. This vision of the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God in heaven. And that glory of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit strengthened him to love and to forgive like Christ, even when they were killing him. Friends, I want you to believe this. What we're seeing here is not exceptional This is not just a a one-time thing. Well, that's great for Stephen, but what about me? You can expect God to do this for you if you walk with him. In the very familiar psalm, Psalm 23, verse 4, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13 says that the, when you suffer with Christ, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. God draws near to the dying saint. There is a special grace given to dying Christians. And often we wonder, could I endure suffering for Christ in that hour of persecution like Stephen? Or, or even in the hour of ordinary death? to cancer, to sickness? And the answer is no. I couldn't, not in myself. But here's the glory. You will not be left to yourself. There will be extraordinary grace for the extraordinary trial of death. The spirit of glory and of God will rest upon you. Verse 55 says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And so as the jaws of death were opening up to consume Stephen, he did not look down its throat and see the pit of hell or the face of Satan. Instead, he saw the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ, the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus Christ, standing at God's right hand, ready to receive him. Friends, though though the hour was near, And the blood was flowing from his face. He stood before all that he had hoped in, all that he had trusted in, standing there ready to receive him. Daniel, you understand, Stephen was able to behold what Daniel had seen in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. With his own eyes, 
Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And friends, do you see that how in that moment, how death, how the fear of pain and the fear of loss and the fear of man is now stripped from all its power. Death raises its ugly head and threatens to take away all of the pleasures of bright spring mornings and buds on trees and every delight of life. But instead of doing that, it opens a window up to heaven to see the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. Though death raises its head and it threatens to take away all of those relationships, all those cherished loves and promises that you have set your heart upon in this world, instead it opens up a picture of the glory of heaven where Jesus is standing there ready to receive you. Where he's ready to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And suddenly... In that moment, you realize that standing before you is all that you could ever hope for. Not that you forget about or that you cease to love the people that you leave behind, but when you come face to face with the glory of God, you see beauty and joy and pleasure and delight and happiness and majesty in its fullness for all that it was ever meant to be. And in that moment and forever after, that will be your heart's one desire and you will cry out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he will. He will because he is good and gracious and merciful. This holy, sovereign God of the universe will receive you because he sent his son to do for you what you could not, to pay the ransom that your sin deserves. And so he welcomes you into his glory. Now, You may never see a vision of this heavenly glory at the moment of your death. But this vision of Stephen's is a reality for every single person who has truly turned away from their sin and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our future. This is our hope. When we behold Christ... We become like him, believing what he believes, loving what he loves, doing what he does. And that includes forgiving our enemies. In verse 60, Stephen falls to his knees and he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And friends, I want you to keep this in mind with the glory of heaven before us. What does it matter what lies behind us? Think about your life. All those things that you want to hold on to, those hurts, those trials, those struggles, those offenses, 
What do they matter if this is before us? Christ is not only standing to receive Stephen, he's standing ready to judge those who are killing him. And knowing that he is a perfect, righteous, all-knowing, and just judge, we can leave it to the wrath of God. Your anger, your bitterness, your self-pity, your hopelessness, your desire for vengeance, your longing to right all of your wrongs, it cannot compare to the joy that is set before you. They are consumed by the presence of Christ and the hope of glory. And so even though they are throwing stones and you are crying out in agony, just as in Christ's death, the spirit of glory rests upon you so that even then you might say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Love, forgiveness, praying for those who persecute you is the fruit of beholding the glory of Christ. That's what Jesus does. You see, we were never meant to go through life trying to cling to Christ by our own power, by our own wisdom, by our own self-sufficiency, just me and Jesus and that what's matter, and all those other people who live as enemies to me, just damn them all to hell. We were never meant to go through life like that. But as we behold Christ, we become like him, even in his death and everything else in between. Our ability to love and to forgive and to pray for, it comes, it flows from the fact that we have received this from Christ and we are now able to extend it to others. Being loved by Jesus results in us loving like Jesus. Being forgiven by Jesus results in us forgiving like Jesus. Being welcomed by Jesus results in us welcoming like Jesus. Being prayed for by Jesus results in us praying for others, including our enemies, like Jesus. And we too can cry out in love, even as the stones are breaking our bodies, because we live in the hope of the resurrection. This life is not all there is. This fragile body, aging and wasting away, is not all there is. We live in the hope of the resurrection, that what is mortal will put on immortality, a future, eternal, glorified body. And it's right here in this text. It's there because Stephen is beholding the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus Christ standing at God's right hand. And if he has been raised from the dead, I know that I too will be raised. But it's also there even in his dying breath in verse 60. That when he had said this, he fell asleep. It says he fell asleep rather than died because of the promise of the resurrection that his body might sleep in the grave, but it will rise again in glory and be rejoined with his soul forevermore in eternal glory with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why the Apostle Paul can say, 
when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And so throw your stones. But I will still love and forgive you because I am going to be with Jesus. And this body that you kill will rise again in glory. Friends, that's what the glory of Christ accomplishes in us. In every way, it makes us more like Jesus. And so though they rage against us, the glory of Christ sustains our love. And third, it bears unexpected fruit. It is unimaginable what God does with this situation. And this astonishing fruit can be seen in those who stayed, in those who were scattered, and in those who would be saved. Chapter 8, verse 1 says that Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Friends, those who stayed, the apostles and perhaps other devout men and women, would be in constant danger of being beaten and imprisoned. And I want you to try to imagine what's happening here. Because Saul now has an official edict from this council, perhaps from Herod, maybe even Pilate, to hunt these Christians down and incarcerate them. And he is moving from house to house, door to door, finding them and dragging them off, committing them to prison. Men and women. away from their spouses, away from their children, throwing them into a prison where the only hope that you have of surviving is if your friends or your family, your loved ones, would take the risk to bring you food, water, and clothing. And so to be a Christian in prison and as a Christian to go and take this food and sustenance to them is to risk exposing yourself and subjecting yourselves to the very same things. Imagine the screams and the cries of those who were left behind. Wives as their husbands were ripped away from them, the, the sole means of providing for their family. And there they are hugging their young ones as they're screaming out and crying and they're dragging her husband away. Imagine the tears of the children who are crying, Mama, Mama, as they seize her and drag her off by the hair committing her to prison. They have no way of providing for her. No way even to know where she's gone. And this brand new church 
that was once thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people has now been utterly decimated and brought down to just a few select people who are willing to stay behind and take the risk to care for the orphans and the widows and those who were imprisoned, constantly risking themselves to the same things. You look at this and you say to yourself, you know, God, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to go like this. This is not your kingdom come. This is not your will be done. And it would be so easy for them to start blaming Stephen. Stephen is so stupid. I can't believe he would do that. I mean, what were you thinking? Calling them stiff-necked, calling them circumcised in heart and ear. What on earth were you declaring that you could see the heavens being opened up? There's Jesus standing there right in front of these people. What do you think they're going to do to you? What do you think they're going to do to us? Now look at the church. Look at these children. Look at these spouses. Look at those who are now imprisoned. Stephen, you're such a fool. That's not what they did. Instead, they honored him by at great risk of themselves, buried him, and made great lamentation over him. They could see how he was faithful to Christ. And they were trusting in God's perfect plan for their suffering. And the unexpected fruit for those who stayed was that they were willing to face persecution to care for others and to lead the church while giving honor to the one whose action brought this whole thing down upon them. The rest, perhaps more than 10,000, were scattered. They abandoned house and home. They had to leave their jobs their neighborhoods, their family and friends, and were subjected to the plundering of their property, all that they had come to know, all that they had built their lives on up to this point has been removed. It's gone. And imagine what's happening here. Friends, this would be, this is like 10,000 people, okay? This is like one quarter of Urbana gone. This is one quarter of the student body of U of I gone. This is all of Parkland gone. This is all of Muhammad gone. All of Savoy gone because of this massive persecution. But what they intended for evil, God intended for good. This persecution overcame the law of inertia that plagues so many Christians. The law of inertia is that an object will remain at rest or an object will remain in motion unless an unbalanced force acts upon it. So an object at rest will remain at rest until a greater force acts upon it, forcing it out into motion. A greater force to drive you from your rest, to drive you from your comfort, to drive you from your complacency and ease and affluence and prosperity and familiarity and your everyday habits into motion for the sake of mission. Otherwise, they would have just stayed in Jerusalem. 
failing to obey Christ's command to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Friends, that is a word of warning to us. You see, there's a far greater danger for us than persecution, and it's called prosperity. Far greater hindrance to the gospel in our own lives is affluence, not adversity. That unbalanced force upon the rest of the church was persecution. And the effect was motion for the sake of mission. They were forced from their earthly securities so that Christ and Christ alone would become their true refuge. And the effect of that was mission, that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They didn't bemoan their circumstances and all their losses. They didn't kind of say, call me Mara, dress in black, and never kind of talk to anybody about Jesus. In fact, it was just the opposite. And chapter 11, verse 19 says that when they went out as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch and Cyrene, and again we see unexpected fruit, and then a great many people were added to the Lord. The church grew, new congregations were formed, many disciples were made because God used this persecution to drive the church to mission. But friends, even if, even if God doesn't bring about persecution our way, we're still called to die to ourselves and to live for Christ. We're still called to take the gospel to the nations. We shouldn't wait for the goad of imprisonment to drive us there. We're still called to live for Christ. And so let's stop being sidetracked or sidelined by the inertia of worldly goods and seeking our earthly pleasures, but to use them for the sake of the gospel, that Christ would truly be honored, whether by in our living or by in our dying. And so we see the unexpected fruit of those who st- in those who stay and those who are scattered. But before we go, we must also see the unexpected fruit in those who would be saved. That young man that received the garments of those who stoned Stephen was named Saul. And that same Saul who approved of Stephen's execution, the same Saul who ravaged the church, would be dramatically converted by the grace of God and given a new name, Paul, the first of Christ's apostles to the Gentiles. This terrorist would be transformed by the grace of God into a teacher. This Gentile hater would become the father and mother to Gentile churches. This adversary to the cause of Christ would be born again a new creation as an apostle and ambassador for Jesus. And there is no single person in history aside from Jesus himself who would have a greater impact on the spread of Christianity than its very first official persecutor. And friends, do you think for a moment that Stephen or those whom Saul dragged off into prison had any idea that this is what would happen, that this would become of this. 
Do you think that Stephen is kind of looking out of the corner of his eye and there's Saul shaking his head in approval at his death and think that guy is going to go out and tell tons of other people about Jesus. We're going to have half of the New Testament because that guy's going to write it. And no idea. And friends, that ought to give us great, great hope. That God can turn fearsome enemies into friends. He can take our greatest critics and convert them into comrades. No one is beyond the hope of the gospel. No one is beyond God's transforming power. But God uses witnesses. Even those who would die and are imprisoned to be the very means of spreading the message of life to men like Paul. Persecution that serves to build the church from one generation to the next throughout the world in ways that no one, absolutely no one, but God could ever expect. As I said a few weeks ago, Tertullian was right that the blood of Christians is the seed of the church. The unexpected fruit born in those who stayed, those who were scattered, and in those who would be saved. And that ought to give us overwhelming hope. And so here in Stephen, we've seen what it means to bear witness to Christ. By living for Christ, by speaking for Christ, and even if the Lord wills it, by dying for Christ. And if the Lord should call us home by dying for him, we can be sure of this, that though our enemies rage against us, it is the glory of Christ that will sustain our love and it will bear unexpected fruit. So let's pray together. Father, we... We're humbled by this message. We're humbled by this truth. God, we confess that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. And I don't know what, what could be more evident of that maybe in our own lives than the fact that, that you would allow your children to die in order to see the growth of your family. But Lord, we trust it. We know that it's only by the death of Christ that we are brought into your family. We know that we've been called in all ways to imitate him. And so Lord, we trust you. And Lord, I pray that we would not look to ourselves that we would not be consumed by the fears of death and of loss and of ridicule, the fear of man that would drive us to silence, but that we would all truly behold the glory of Christ and find him altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether beautiful, And that it is his glory that would drive and motivate us to love others 
even at the cost of our lives, for your glory, for their good, and for our abundant joy in him. It's in Jesus' name we pray.